Welcome to the sixth episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Gabriella Dixon, and I am Associate Content Manager of the Review. Our podcast explores a variety of issues with figures from around the world. In this episode, Sarah Mangi, Abhishek Sharma, and Arpit Chaturvedi got a chance to sit down with Dr. Kaushik Basu. Sarang Mangi and Abhishek Sharma are both MPA fellows at SIPA, and Arpit Chaturvedi is the editor-in-chief at Cornell Policy Review. Dr. Basu is the CMARX Professor of International Studies and Professor of Economics at Cornell University, former chief economist at the World Bank, and the ex-chief economic advisor of the Government of India. Thank you, Dr. Basu, for taking out the time to talk to Cornell Policy Review. I wanted to start our discussion by knowing more about your experiences as the chief economic advisor of the government of India. What were the challenges that the Indian economy was facing at that point of time? And what was some of the policy advice that you gave and how did you navigate through those challenges in India? This was a very exciting um, experience for me because I went in as such a green horn, having had no experience in this kind of work and sort of tossed into the policy world. So in the beginning, it was a bigger challenge for me doing this job than the challenge of the Indian economy. I didn't even quite know where to start and how to interact. But I have to say my first couple of weeks, maybe even months, there were times when I just thought that if I could escape from this and go back to my peaceful academic life, if there was a quiet way of doing it, I would be tempted to do that. But there was no way it would make news. And I stayed on. And after some time, I learned the art And as experience, I think it was extremely enriching. I'm still quite confident that this is not something that I would like to devote my entire career to. But sort of midway in my career to have got this interlude was just very, very fortunate. The practical challenge, apart from my challenge of fitting into that world, understanding the bureaucracy, every place has its norms. And since my entire working life had been in academics, For me to learn just those norms and patterns, hierarchy of structure, which is minimal in academic settings, understandably is very much there in government or in a corporate world. And so I was having to fit into that structure as well. So there was all that. But on economics and the economic front, there was a lot of learning and a couple of engagements, which to me were actually quite direct experience of how economics can be put to use very early. This was within a couple of weeks of joining the government. I got a call from the Prime Minister's office saying that inflation was a big challenge. And the Prime Minister, with just seven, eight of us, wanted to have a discussion on inflation management. The time when I joined Government of India, end of 2009, some of you will remember, food Mm -hmm. inflation was in about 20% per annum. Overall inflation was around 10% per annum. And food inflation in India, in a poor country, it gets people all stressed up. So the government was also considering what to do about this. In that meeting, I remember it's a very simple piece of advice. And this is one of those things that was adopted and policy advice. And there are many things which you give which never get adopted. Understandably, it's a big country, lots of ideas floating. In India, during food price inflation, Food Corporation of India releases food onto the market to dampen prices. The release, the way it used to be done was 1,000 metric tons per trader. So through an auction, you hand over 1,000 to one, 1,000 to another, 1,000 to another, seven, eight traders, done. Then they will release onto the Delhi market. From my study of industrial organization theory and memories of Cournot analysis, Mm. I was acutely aware that by making it such big blocks Uh and handing it over to seven or eight people, Uh you're creating a Cournot oligopoly of a few oligopolists 
right. who will then hold the prices up high. Uh -huh. Release the same amount of food, cut up into smaller batches to 10 times more traders. Then tell them you operate on the market freely. Right. You don't have to do anything else. They will compete among themselves and bring prices down further. Right. I remember feeling very self-conscious among these bureaucrats to make a suggestion of this kind. But the prime minister at that time, being an economist, I think he picked up the cue right. of what I was suggesting. And this got transmitted. So after a couple of months, India started doing a smaller release. Right. This is just one concrete example, but my life was just full of new, uh, very practical. These are not intricate economics, but right. practical mm -hmm. policy economics, which I was using all the time. The other one, which I can't go into the details, auctioning something. Mm -hmm. Indian government is not a big auctioner. When you want to sell something, bureaucrats sit down, calculate the value of this, and then you somehow sell it to people at that value. But we know from one part of economics, which is like engineering, is a well-designed auction. You can earn a lot of money. You can get people to reveal their true value mm -hmm. and pay a higher amount. The 3G spectrum was right. one of the first times India used a sophisticated auction to sell a product onto the market. We had calculated that the government would earn on a particular part of the product $7 billion. Uh -huh. The government ended up earning $15 billion on that just by a well-designed auction. There, I didn't have a big role. Mm -hmm. I was pushing the government to use auctions. Mm -hmm. Then a professional body was brought in to design the auction and do it. And it was a big success. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of failures, but I won't go into those. <laughs> right. So you talked about inflation. So currently we have had a sustained period of low inflation and economists say that this era of low inflation is here to stay. And when you reflect back on your period as a chief yeah. economic advisor, so how do you see the differences? What has triggered this current regime of low inflation? Inflation is a fascinating uh, topic. Uh, during my uh, time towards the end, it had gone down. But I would say about one fourth of my time was being devoted to inflation uh, management. Uh, the Reserve Bank was acting, we were acting and trying to manage. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's come down now and much more manageable. And people get more upset by inflation than anything else because, you know, unemployment hits some people. Inflation hits you every day and every morning. I would have my relatives calling me up from Calcutta saying, what are you doing sitting in Delhi? Prices have gone up again. And people sort of believe that sitting in Delhi, you can control prices. Inflation is a fascinating topic and I spent so much time on that. No one fully understands how you control inflation, what triggers inflation. We have some theories, money supply, interest rates, etc. No one fully understands. And no one controls it. Ordinary people get angry thinking that if the government wants, you can stop inflation. There are many other things government can if they want to do it. Inflation is not like that. If you try to do it with a sledgehammer, in Russia it used to happen, keep prices low, the government creates a law, bread has to be cheap. People will stand for eight hours to buy one loaf of bread. You can lower prices through huge damage in terms of time and bringing the whole economy to a crushing halt. So inflation, we really don't fully understand. And I would very often in interviews and all that time tell people that we are trying to do our best, but we are fumbling. With RBI, we are working on money supply control, interest rates being raised. Uh, fiscal policy, we know these things have effects. You try to control, but no hundred shop fire away. Food inflation, the example I just gave you, mm -hmm. how you release food can have some effect on that. So there are these little things we know. And all I can say is that during our time, we were struggling with that. Citizens were angry about many things. Corruption was one of them. But they were more angry about inflation than anything else because that hits you every morning. But, and people don't understand that there is no single person who controls inflation. We don't have 100%. We don't even know the levers of 100% control. It went down. I think it's just a little bit. Inflation goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. It has gone down. It has been relatively low. And we do know that a reasonable fiscal policy 
keeping mm-hmm. fiscal deficit under check has an influence, monetary policy has an influence. So one just hopes that it's going to remain in this way. You have to worry about one thing, if inflation goes too low, mm-hmm. it begins to damage employment and such mm-hmm. things. And we know there are countries like Japan, mm-hmm. which have suffered from low inflation problem, which is damaging the rest of the economy. So India has to be a bit careful. I think the line that Raghuram Rajan took as central bank uh, governor is roughly right. An inflation somewhere between 2 and 4% for an emerging economy is probably the right thing to target for mm-hmm. and try to hold it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Professor Basu, there's a problem of rampant corruption in the third world countries. What are the reasons which makes corruption more pervasive in some countries as compared to others? Yeah, corruption is a huge problem. Virtually across the board in emerging economies, really. And even in host of rich countries, it takes a different form. It's there. But emerging economies, it's a lot of everyday corruption that you encounter. Uh, Though the last phase of Russian communism that I've seen with my own eyes, a kind of corruption which permeates sort of everything. It's not that in India, Pakistan, Brazil, there's a lot of corruption. Right. China, a lot mm-hmm. of corruption. But it's not that every day you're going and encountering. But still, it's very widespread. What does it come from? What happens? I, first of all, feel that economists don't appreciate enough that human psychology and mindsets matter a lot. Um, uh, corruption is not all centralized control. A firm in Sweden told to behave in a particular way by the government will not even try to do profit maximization. They will behave in that way because they are supposed to carry that out. And this is not culturally just Sweden. We used to think that this is maybe European. Now we know East Asian countries, which used to have a lot of corruption, corruption has gone down uh, dramatically. There are some countries where corruption went down very rapidly, Hong Kong and Singapore. Over a couple of decades, corruption went, and they are culturally, they are Asians, their behavior pattern has become different. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is any innate difference in human beings which cause corruption. But we function in our everyday life with a sense of right and wrong. Even in most emerging economies, most people don't think of stealing other people's wallet. Mm -hmm. That has become programmed in our heads. We don't think of doing that. Likewise, in Japan, Uh, A food store told to sell food at a low price to ordinary people won't even think of selling off the food on the open market. But that value may not be there in India. In India, it can be that, no, I won't steal someone else's wallet. But if I get a chance to siphon off some food and sell it on the market, I'll do it. Take an American firm. An American firm may follow the government's rule on uh, to the poor, I'll sell it at the poor. I won't steal other people's wallet. But if there is a food shortage, they'll raise prices. That's a dumb thing. It's business. People are wanting to buy food, I'll raise. So there's no innate right and wrong. But what values we carry in our head makes for corruption to be widespread or not. And these values are just sort of equilibrium values. We've got used to that. Hope in this comes from the experience of the world. There are countries which used to be extremely corrupt 200 years ago. Very little corruption now. Sweden, Denmark, United Kingdom, these were very corrupt countries. Corruption is negligible in these countries. The hope is even greater, as I mentioned, Hong Kong and Singapore are recent experience of countries which have switched over. To me, you have to tackle this problem with devising intelligent laws, incentives. You have to keep in mind people do respond to incentives, but also work on people's values. I feel, for instance, in emerging economies, and this I can think of um, across the board, the police is very often corrupt. There are stories from Nigeria of rampant corruption we know. And in these countries, when you've had a small road incident, say, with another car and you see the police coming, you don't feel comforted by it because, you know, soon I'm going to get into bigger trouble. 
Whereas if it happens in Japan, if it happens in East Asian countries, even in Korea, if it happens in Scandinavian countries, you feel comforted the police is coming. And here I feel like people immediately talk of increase the salary of the police. I don't think that's the case. Give them dignity that they are respected for the job that they are doing. And then you begin to value that, that I'm respected for the job that I'm doing and I'll come and do my job. These are changes in mindsets which play an important role. And in India's teacher truancy is a very important problem. Teachers in a lot of village schools, government schools, they come and don't teach, they go away. <laughs> Delhi School of Economics, where I taught for many years, mm -hmm. there was no monitoring of your teaching. You can teach, you cannot teach and go away. One or two people took advantage of that. But 99% treated this as an honorable job I'm doing. I and mean, I'm proud of the job I'm doing and you don't have to give me financial incentive for me to do my job. Mm -hmm. We discount that disproportionately. So you need a combination of law and psychology. Yeah. One more point I will make about corruption. This is a danger that is faced by, I think, China in a very big way, but even other countries. Mm -hmm. In countries where corruption is rampant mm -hmm. all over, many leaders come to power genuinely wanting to re remove corruption. I think that there are people in these countries who want to remove corruption. But when corruption is rampant, you face a choice. Do you begin by catching your friends or your enemies? For any politician, the rational thing to do is don't catch your friends. You don't want them behind bars. You first catch your enemies. After some time, corruption becomes an instrument of dissent, silencing of dissent. China has this risk in a very big way, but all emerging economies with rampant corruption, you go after your enemies, you go after the dissenting voices, catch them because corruption is all around. So there are big dangers, but I remain hopeful that if we can use a combination of psychology, new behavioral economics, the design of law, we can go the way Hong Kong and Singapore have gone in recent times and rich countries have gone in the past. So, talking about corruption, one of the steps that Government of India has recently taken is demonetization. So how do you weigh in on that? Because the argument that they give is that it will control black money, control corruption. Yeah. So how do you see that? The demonetization to me was a complete non-starter. It is not the right policy. It was not rightly conceived, not rightly, in a couple of ways. Uh, let me explain. First of all, any corruption control, you have to keep in mind how much shock are you giving to the economy. There's a lot of legitimate activity which goes on in an economy. In, if in the name of controlling corruption, you bring everything to a halt. Yes, you will control corruption, but you will also damage a lot of legitimate activity. So that's a perennial balance. This demonetization brought 86% of the currency in circulation was suddenly declared not legal tender. The shock was huge. If the growth rate falls by 3%, my figure is about for a year, it's about a 3% knock in growth rate taking place compared to what could have happened. <laughs> India was on a very good wicket. Other policies were pretty good policies, but this one was a bad shock, which is a huge loss and being borne by ordinary people. And to me also, it was very poorly conceived. Take one part of the demonetization policy. One part was to catch fake currency notes. This was actually the first thing in the Ministry of Finance paper that was circulated on 8th of November when the demonetization was declared. That the first thing is fake currency notes, then corruption and other things were coming in. Fake currency notes, one citizen circulation, by catching it and changing it with a real currency note, you achieve absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Fake currency note is a problem when it gets injected into the economy. Someone is buying up goods by injecting useless paper that that person has printed. One citizen circulation, it's like any other currency note. To damage the entire economy, to catch those and change them into white is towards no purpose. 
the black money. We more or less knew that the biggest black money in India and in most emerging economies is parked in other countries, mm. is already converted into real estate. You've already bought real estate with your black money, it's gone. It's a tiny segment of black money you're catching by arresting it. But you're also stopping ordinary people. I had mine used to work in our household, Bengali lady who had retired and gone back to her village. She phoned us howling and crying that my entire life saving, which could be how much, 20,000 rupees, 30,000 rupees, negligible amount, is in cash. And I'm very nervous to go to a bank to change it. How do I do? I feel a lot of ordinary people were getting caught. The biggest ones had, had their money outside. So this was a jolt to the market of a kind which is just completely uncalled for and so as a corruption control measure. And it spawned another kind of corruption. We do know that some of the richest people who were caught with big amounts of mm. cash, they had these money mules. Ordinary people were given smaller blocks of money to go and change them, charge a fee and you collect it back again. So this is a new kind of corruption that spawned. So demonetization for me was a non-starter. In your book, An Economist in the Real World, I was reading and you talk about the ineffectiveness of making laws upon laws to deal with issues like corruption. So in general, you also talk about your concept of focal point. So for a lay listener, if you could explain what that concept is and how it can improve policy design. Yeah. For the lay reader, this is difficult to explain in a short interview. I mean, right. give me two, three hours with lay readers. <laughs> I think I can fully convey this to them. Right. And I will be, by the way, doing a little bit of this uh, on the 14th of December. I'm giving something called the Palkiwala Lecture in Bombay, right. where I will, I will over a half an hour period, I'll explain this a bit better. But let me try and give you a glimpse of this. Mm -hmm. This is a conceptual problem, which goes back to early philosophers like David Hume and others uh, thinking about this. And some contemporary legal theorists also right. have commented and a few economists. See, why does the law have an effect when it does? It's a bit of a puzzle because in the end, a law is nothing but a new set of rules written down on paper. So the game of life that we are playing, why should writing down a few things on paper begin to change how I behave, how the police person behaves, how the judge behaves? That is the puzzle with which my book starts. Mm -hmm. That strictly speaking, if you've written down a new law and I decide I'll still continue to do what I'm doing and the police person decides the police person will do whatever he was doing and the judge decides she will do whatever she was doing, then the law will have no effect. And indeed, in emerging economies and even in rich economies, you have lots of examples of laws which everyone collectively looks the other way and the law is nothing but some ink that is on paper, some words written down. But then we do know that the law also has an effect. How does that do it? This is where the notion of focal point, which was developed by Thomas Schelling, mm -hmm. the economist and the Nobel Prize winner, is what I use in this new book of mine, which I'm actually putting absolute final touches now. It should be out in April. Right. It's called The Republic of Beliefs. It sounds very abstract, but actually I think it's something extremely everyday life and happens. Once a new law is enacted and publicly announced, it changes people's expectations of one another's behavior. I expect the police person to come and catch me if I drive fast after a new speeding law comes in. The police person expects that after the new speeding law comes in, if he does not arrest people driving fast, he will not get a promotion in his job. Mm -hmm. The person meant to promote the police person knows that after the new law has come in, if he promotes people who doesn't do the job, something will happen to him. It's our collectivity of beliefs which change. Mm -hmm. So in the end, a law is nothing but something which expects 
changes our expectations of one another's behavior. And a focal point is very broadly an idea of something which is at one level seems meaningless, Mm -hmm. but which triggers behavior by exchanging our expectations of other people's behavior. The simplest description of a focal point is people planning to meet at airports. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to meet you and two of us have forgotten to decide where we will meet. I'm thinking where will I go and meet. Mm -hmm. One way of solving this and actually airports have solved this. Most airports have put up a sign which says meeting point. Right. Who's meeting point? Why meeting point? (laughs) Nothing. Just a sign. It's a bit of ink on paper. uh, Two words written down on paper. But it changes our behavior. I go and wait under there knowing that you will also probably look at that Mm -hmm. and wait under there. So it actually begins to influence behavior by putting a couple of words over there. The law in the end is just that. When I got onto this kind of a theorizing, I was a bit worried. We take law to be something concrete, solid, bricks and mortar, whereas I'm saying law is nothing but a device to change our expectations of one another. Fortunately, there is a big philosophical school originating from the work of David Hume, which takes the view very similar to that. Hume was doing it without the artillery of game theory, which he did not have, but saying in the end, it is one another's expectations of one another's behavior, which gives the tyrant the power that the tyrant has. This is what Václav Havel later Mm -hmm. in the context of Czechoslovakia does and McCarthy period in the United States. You can see examples of that all around the Indian emergency during Mm 1975-77, where suddenly gets power gets concentrated in the hands of the prime minister and the president. It's nothing but my expectation of what you will do to me, your expectations of what I will do to you. Professor Basu, you have spent most of your time as an academician. How did you find the transition from academia to being the chief economist for the government of India? It was a difficult transition, but not as difficult as it could be for many other people. One thing you know, I've met economists in government who have come in from outside and who will shake their heads and say, you know, you give advice. People don't take your advice. And you have to be a bit foolish to think that in a big country with thousands of advice pouring in, every advice of yours will be taken. I went in with a certain amount of cynicism about that, which helped me. So I I knew that a few things will be accepted. Most won't be accepted, but you place the ideas there. Also, in very early in government, I told myself that even on my bad days, I will tell myself that people go to remote islands to do anthropological studies. It's not always pleasant, but for them, it's exciting learning the ways of a new group. In the beginning, I really took it that way to watch politicians, to watch bureaucrats, seasoned bureaucrats who have done all their life. What is it that they are doing? What is the game that they're playing? And that observer's view was to be, I would tell myself, like Darwin watching in Galapagos (laughs) Islands, the strange behavior of strange creatures. Malinowski in Trobriand Island watching strange behaviors. I was watching and learning about these strange behaviors. So for me, it was an exciting intellectual venture. And because I went in with a certain amount of practical sense, I think very quickly I fitted in. Within three, four months, I was feeling completely that I'm also one of these creatures sitting in these (laughs) meetings and doing these jobs. And at the same time, I was very clear in my head that I belong to the world of ideas. I enjoy that most. I've picked up lots of ideas. I was waiting to get back to writing and that's where I'm now. So moving ahead, there's this current debate about the rising inequality. People saying 1%, top 1% represent this much amount of global wealth and all. Contrary to that, there is this belief that these are all distractions. Let's focus on the bottom 20%, 30%, 40% and try to improve their lives. Yeah. So how do you weigh in on this debate? 
See, I have no doubt that the first battle is the poverty battle. Mm -hmm. That extreme poverty is shameful and in today's world there's no business of that being there and for this you don't have to go to India or China and uh, New York I mean uh, since I spent a lot of time there when you see the homeless I feel it's just shocking in a country as rich as this that there are so many people sleeping on the roadside with nothing so poverty is the number one target but the people who say that let's not worry about inequality and poverty for me that is very often an alibi and that's very often for the rich a way to distract attention from something that will hurt your pocket as well. Mm -hmm. And to me, inequality is also actually a huge problem. It's true, number one problem is poverty, mm -hmm. but it's close on its heels. The way the world is becoming few people capturing the full world, the asset distribution, for instance, has gone crazy. These are these numbers, I forget the exact ones, that uh, there are studies which will show you. Oxfam has studies, 80 people controlling half the wealth in the world. Mm. It's just unacceptable that you live in a world like that. And if you say that, let's keep fighting poverty while whatever happens over there, to me it's unacceptable. And the only way we manage is by silencing the minds of people, by saying that, look, that is the way it has to be, that's the way it was meant. And we do know that societies are capable of great injustices over very long periods of time. Just by making people believe that whether it be because of God or nature or whatever you believe, that's the way it's supposed to be. In America, you had lynching and discrimination against blacks of a kind which even into the 1950s and 60s, you wonder how could that be tolerated? A lot of it was mindsets, people feeling that that's all right, that that's the way it's supposed to be. Caste in India to me is an intolerable injustice which has carried on for hundreds of years, but people have been made to believe that that's the way it is. You can even now continue with a lot of inequality by telling people that, look, that's the way it's supposed to be. We will corner everything, but you be there. I feel it's wrong. I feel people should be made aware of the great injustice of inequality. And there should be mass movements to say that we are not going to tolerate this kind of inequality. Again, you need intelligent intervention, which I keep stressing. Mm -hmm. You can bring things to a halt. I mean, Russia is a very good example. It had a revolution in 1917 because of the great inequalities of the Tsarist time. Right. But by the time you're reaching 1980s, inequality is back again. Few people have captured the entire booty of the state in their pockets. And there is this beautiful line in, I can't say it as beautifully as Saramago, a Portuguese writer saying, in the end, when the Russian communism is collapsing, it's not socialism that is collapsing. It's a crony capitalist system which was collapsing. That's what it had become. So if you go in for this kind of idealism without a blueprint, you will again end up in the same kind of system. So you need mass awareness. With that, you need, again, intelligent design to create a better world. And I remain hopeful that today in America, yes, there's a small group that will say it was fine what was happening in the 1950s, but vast majority will feel that's wrong. The mindset has changed. In India, I feel caste also, it's there, it's widespread, but there are also lots of people who feel it's a dreadful blot on our society. We have to go past that. And so I like to believe even someday inequality of the kind that we have today, maybe a hundred years later when we look back and say, how did we tolerate this kind of inequality? In the same way that how did we tolerate lynching in the United States? Right. I hope, I remain hopeful that that's what will happen. On that hopeful note, Professor, we'd like to thank you for taking out the time to talk to Cornell Policy Review.